Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. My name is Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. Ellen, it's good to be back in the saddle with you. This is not probably the first airing episode of this season, but it is our first one that we are recording, and I'm in such a good mood. And it's, it's not just the It's like the, the first day of school, and you love it. <laughs> yeah, it's like the first day of school before the third day of school when I was being berated by all of my peers. Yeah. So it's still first day. Today we have an awesome guest. His name is Dr. Alan Ye. He teaches at Biola University, which is my wife's alma mater. Shout out to Biola in Orange County, California. And what happened is I did this interview with him, but Ellen, you and I are going to pop in in the middle and at the end and sort of talk through some of the stuff that stood out to you. I asked him all my questions, so now we get to chat about whatever you find interesting. And you, you've listened to it and you like what he had to say. I want to listen to it again. I love this guy. Wow, that's that's a lot. Well, I loved it too. So we're going to get into it with Alan and then you'll hear from Ellen and I in about a half hour. So your last name, Ye, is Chinese, correct? Correct. So what has your experience been growing up as a Chinese American Christian? Yes, there's a term known as liminality, which means that you're straddling two worlds and you're basically comfortable in both, but maybe also uncomfortable in both. And there are great advantages to people who are bicultural like me because I'm born to first generation immigrant parents. And yet I was born and raised in the United States completely. And so I am bilingual in Chinese and English and I'm comfortable in both cultures. However, how I am received sometimes is a little bit odd. You would think that I would have great advantage being able to straddle both cultures. But when I'm in the United States, there's this constant perpetual foreigner mentality that is foisted upon Asian Americans a lot. People ask me, where am I from? And that's the question that Asian Americans really hate, because what people mean by that is not, are you from Los Angeles? They mean, what Asian country are you from? And I, when I insist that I'm born and raised in the United States, they, they want to know, no, 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 but where are you really from? And I'm thinking, I wasn't born and raised in China, but that's what people want to say and know. But, you know, we don't say that to white people. We don't ask, hey, you know, are you from Germany? Are you from Britain? Right. We just assume they're just Americans. And so sometimes I feel like, well, can't I be seen as an American? without being relegated to the perpetual foreigner mentality. But then, you know what, to be fair, I go to Asia and people know that I'm not from Asia because of the way that I talk, the way that I hmm. act, the way that I dress. And when I tell them I'm from the United States, they don't believe me. Because what do they see on media? The only thing they see on media is that all Americans are white or black. Hmm. So they say, well, you can't be from the United States because you're not white or black. So then where are you really from? So I feel sort of like I have no home then, right? I'm able to navigate both cultures, speak both languages, and yet I'm not accepted by either. And this is a state of liminality. But, you know, honestly, this is a state that a lot of Christians should be familiar with because the sort of phrase that is often used is we are in the world but not of it. Missiologist Andrew Walls actually has a better way of phrasing it. He calls it the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. And so everyone is part of culture, every Christian. We, we are in culture, we use culture, we express ourselves through culture, we are inseparable from culture. So that's the indigenizing principle. And yet the pilgrim principle says that we are strangers and aliens in this world, and we're not of this world, and we're citizens of the city of God. 
And so there's this tension that we always sort of wrestle with, and that is a liminal state that all Christians should be familiar with. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think that there is a connection between the way, and I'm, I'm assuming this based on interviews that I've done with other Asian American Christians and just common sense from my own experience on the West Coast, do you think that there is a connection between the way that the Chinese American church, Korean American churches, Asian American churches are not really, they're not sort of lifted up on a par with the big, more majority white, or maybe even uh, majority black denominations in just sort of like the theological prestige they're given. Do you think there's a connection between that and the fact that we also aren't paying much attention to what's going on in the global church outside of the United States? Absolutely. You know, part of this discussion has been about putting majority world churches or people of color churches on equal par with white or Western churches. But honestly, even if the numbers are in the majority in the people of color or majority world category, the influence certainly is not there. Here's a thought experiment. Try to name an Asian theologian. I'm sure you can name plenty of white theologians. Yeah. You might even name some Latino or black theologians. But can you name an Asian theologian? For most people, they cannot even name one. Now, also consider the size of the Korean church and also consider the size of the Chinese church. I mean, if you add those up, there's maybe more than in the Western church. And yet, why is there no voice, theological or power or otherwise, of influence within the Asian church? And it's certainly not due to lack of education. You know, I would not even say it's due to lack of money, because these churches do have money, too. It is due to lack of attention, and I think that needs to change. I did, not to virtue signal here, but I did think of Amos Young when you asked that question. Oh, very good. (laughs) I had one. I had one at least. That's wonderful. Now, what's going on in evangelicalism, in evangelical movements outside of the United States these days that we're not even aware of here? Absolutely. I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is the rise of Pentecostalism. I mean, I, I suppose people probably might be aware of that. However, what are the implications of that? So, and just to to break in, because this is not a theology podcast primarily, when you say Pentecostalism, you mean speaking in tongues? Are we talking about banner waving? What what counts as Pentecostalism? (laughs) Right. Well, the problem is it is a little bit undefined because speaking in tongues and banner waving can fall under that. But Pentecostalism also is a denomination when you think of you know, some of the big denominations like the Assemblies of God. Right. And so it is an ecclesial structure as well. But really what I'm talking about is a focus on the Holy Spirit. Okay. Pentecostalism, we're we're thinking second chapter of Acts, Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And this emphasis on the Holy Spirit is something that Westerners just don't focus on very much. I mean, I feel like Westerners have a great theology of God the Father. We have an excellent Christology. But the third person of the Godhead— we don't focus much on. And this is ironic because Jesus said, he is the person that will be with you. And we think of ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet this is the person that we don't know. Um, Retired 
New Testament professor from Regent College in Vancouver, Gordon Fee, he has a famous phrase where he says, we are effectively, as Westerners, Binitarian. We're not Trinitarian. We don't really acknowledge the Holy Spirit practically. And yet people in the majority world do. And so I feel like while we in the West maybe have a great deal to teach the majority world about Christology, they have a great deal to teach us about pneumatology, which is the theology of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And so this is the fastest growing form of Christianity around the world. We in the West like to think that evangelicalism is, or maybe even Roman Catholicism is. Actually, that's not true. Pentecostalism mm. is. And, you know, some people may categorize Pentecostalism as a form of evangelicalism. I, could, I think it can go either way. You could say it is, or you could say it's a distinct thing all on its own. But the person you mentioned earlier, Amos Young, is one of the uh, greatest scholars of this phenomenon of Pentecostalism, and he's written a lot about it. And I think we need to pay attention to this segment of Christianity. So... Uh, I don't mean this in a callous way. I mean it seriously. Who cares? Why? Like, uh, why should I care that it's Pentecostal? Why should I care? Why should I devote mental energy to thinking about this? Great. I think if we care about Jesus's name being glorified over the entire earth. Now, I realize that not all Christians actually care about that. Certainly, they, who, certainly many of them do not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But if anyone categorizes themselves as being evangelical, which has the roots of gospel or spreading the gospel, or if we put worship of the triune God as our greatest goal in life, or if we desire to see that Jesus's name be lifted up, and then we care about how people around the world receive Christianity and how they express Christianity. Um, because if we are not paying attention to that, then our message will not get across. In communication theory, there's always the sender and the receiver, and the two need to be linked in a way in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of how this message lands. And I think if we simply say we don't care, the message will not land. And I think it also goes the other way. As the majority world now has the majority of Christians, then they're going to increase in power and in influence. And one day we may find ourselves on the other foot and, and say, wow, we hear all this theology coming out of the majority world and we have no idea what they mean by that. Or we disagree with that. Or, you know, do we call them heretics? But what if we're in the minority and are we the heretics, you know? So I think it behooves us to have a worldwide unity among Christians to work together, to theologize together, and to spread the gospel together. Yeah, that's really interesting. There are these residual things going on in my the back of my head as a, as a white male, raised Christian, from childhood. Like, I remember going to Christian high school and someone saying— you know, pretty soon whites will not be the majority in America. And I remember them saying that without any trace of irony, without any trace of self-criticism, it, it was stated as a fact that was supposed to be worrisome. And I don't know if I heard it on Republican talk radio or if I heard it in church. I don't, I don't remember now, but it was certainly something in the air. And it's something that now we hear a lot on the news. I think it's by 2045 or 2050, 
America is expected to be a non-majority white for the first time in its history. And there is this reaction as a white person of like, there's this sort of tribal guttural, like, no, we're, we're supposed to be, my group's supposed to be number one. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I feel that way. And I certainly don't actually think that it matters, but, but that's a thing that happens. And my question for you is might meditation on the actual fact of the Christian church in the world, in the larger world, be a kind of an antidote to that fearful response or tribal response in white American Christians. I love that. Thank you. I think absolutely. (laughs) I think that is a great thought because look, I think we are wired for tribalism. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, I do think that tribalism is there to protect us and also to give us common language. But I do think that tribalism can become very errant when it becomes extreme in some senses, such as racism. But the way you framed it is wonderful because I think instead of white Christians lamenting that their whiteness is becoming a minority and they're losing power, I think they should rejoice that Christianity is the majority in the world and that Mm. most of the world is becoming Christian and that God is and his word and his worship and his people are actually the majority in the world. And what a great thought that is. And to to get encouragement and hope in that instead of seeing people of color as an enemy, seeing them as the ally and on your team. And that is a great way to frame it. Yeah, there is something, and I, I do plan to pursue this more in future episodes, but there's something just deeply ironic about the Christian theoretically wanting the gospel to go to every tribe and nation. And then that same Christian voting to have no refugees from every tribe and nation come to their city where they might (laughs) preach the gospel to them without having to travel and live in a hut or whatever. Like they're coming here for you to preach to them and you don't want them to come. Yes. And I think that, Part of the problem is the lack of information and education about majority world people. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people still think that whites are Christians and majority world people are Christians. But if you flip the narrative and say, actually, majority world people are the majority of Christians, oh, then that sort of changes things. It's similar to the whole Israel-Palestine debate. And I know that America so often supported Israel over Palestine. And I, you know, I don't want to get too political here. I'm not saying I, I'm supporting one side or the other, but a lot of Americans don't realize that the majority of the Christians in that land are actually in the, on the Palestinian side. Mm. Now there are a lot of Palestinian Muslims as well, but there are a lot of Palestinian Christians. And for us to side against the Palestinians, because we think that they're all Muslims, actually, we're actually siding against many of our Christian brothers and sisters. And so just to recognize that as a reality, I think is important. If we were paying attention, and I would add, if there were robust translations coming to us into English, because I imagine there are not a lot of translations of theological work being done in other languages. I'm sure that the English stuff gets translated elsewhere. But if, if we were paying attention and there were sufficient translations, what theological work 
might we see these days coming out of Asia, Africa, Latin America? Absolutely. Theology, I want to clarify, is to be distinguished from truth. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that theology is not true. But I'm saying that only God knows truth untainted by culture. Right. All right. And maybe even the word untainted is unfair, seen through the lens of culture. God knows truth apart from culture. I don't know about you, Alan, but everything I know is completely separate from my cultural time and place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we, we often like to think so, right? We think right. that everything is in a vacuum when it comes to us, but everyone else is beholden to their culture. In truth, everybody is beholden to their culture and everything we say and do is beholden to our culture. Even using language is cultural because every, all our words are laden with culture. And as such, when we look at theology, we have to say, okay, that is filtered through our lens of culture. That is not pure, untainted truth, the way that God sees it. And as such, we have to say, well, although we don't want to be completely beholden to our culture in the sense that we just give it up, right? And say, well, okay, I'm I'm just going to let myself be swept away by my cultural lens. However, we also need to acknowledge that it is there. And most theology is actually a result of a battle against heresy. Now, if you look at the original ecumenical councils, for example. You'll have to define ecumenical for us. Yes. In the early church, believe it or not, the words Trinity and original sin and you know things like this were, were not uh, taken for granted. Those things actually had to be fought over before we agreed on them. And so it wasn't until about 3rd or 4th century AD where the early church had these four original ecumenical councils. The first one was Nicaea, and that's where we get the Nicene Creed from. second one was Constantinople. The third one was Ephesus. And the fourth one was Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, however you say it. And there were these heretics, now we know them as heretics, but at the time people weren't sure, named Arius, Apollinarius, Pelagius, Nestorius, Jacob Baradius. And so these guys would postulate things like, well, is the Holy Spirit really God? Is Jesus really God? Is there any such thing as original sin? Maybe we can go our whole lives without sin. And we think, how can anyone possibly think these things? Well, the early church was still trying to figure out what exactly the Bible said. And so they had to wrestle through these things. And so it often was the heretics that led us to good theology. So I might say heresy is the mother of orthodoxy. So Hmm. when someone said something wrong, people said, wait a minute, is that that correct? And they had to all get together and discuss this. And then they had to say what is right and what is wrong. So actually, we have to, in some ways, give thanks to the heretics for forcing us to produce good theology. Now, of course— If a theological battle was fought in Europe, it does not necessarily mean that that same theological battle was fought in Africa or Asia or Latin America. And so different cultures and contexts fight different theological battles. And after they fight these battles, then the church comes up with some unity of consensus on what is true, and that becomes the new orthodoxy. And so The early church came up with Nicene Creed after they had fought all these theological battles and the Chalcedonian Confession and things like this. 
Now, missiologist Andrew Walls, who I had previously mentioned on this podcast, he said, okay, imagine if Westerners took this Nicene Creed and went over to Africa and showed it to a bunch of Nigerian Pentecostals. Now, what would the Nigerian Pentecostals say? He said, they'd probably look at it and go, okay, sure, I agree with what's in here. They kind of shrug their shoulders and move on. It's not because they don't deem it's true or this, they don't deem it's important, but it wasn't birthed out of their battles or mm. their cultural context. And so they're like, well, it's not something we ever had to fight. And so it's not something we really, you know, get riled up about. Right, right. Now, now let's flip the tables. Now, let's say these Nigerian Pentecostal Christians came up with their own theological battles, right? Uh, what are some things that they might talk about? Well, how about the validity of ancestor veneration? Right. How yeah. about polygamy, the legitimacy of polygamy? Hmm. You know, when we think about some of these things that they might talk about or the use of the spiritual gifts, and what if they come up with some counsel and they come up with some orthodoxy and they bring this new creed and bring it to the West and say, now you have to accept this. Would we accept it? Of course we would not accept it. <laughs> yeah. I don't we, have we to would... think about that for more than two seconds. <laughs> but we would say that we never even thought about those things and they're not relevant to our culture. And those are not theological battles that we've ever fought. Oh, I think there's something more sinister as well. We, I think that deep down we would say, uh, you guys are not good theologians in Nigeria. We, yeah. you, you don't have the intellectual and theological history that white Westerners have. So what, like, I think there's a guttural thing that's darker than just, I don't need to talk about ancestor worship. It's, it's much darker than that. I think. Yeah, I think that's true. And so there becomes this unfair playing field, like, right. Okay. Majority world Christians need to accept Western theology. Well, Westerners are suspicious of majority world theology. And I mean, this, this is the state of theology. And yet the majority of Christians live in the two thirds world. And so what are we going to do about this? If the majority of Christians have no voice or power and the minority of Christians today do. It's like theological colonialism, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I'm going to bring up one more very important thing about this publishing houses. You need money to have publishing houses. Mm. And publishing houses get your voice, your theological voice all over the world. And so if majority world Christians don't have that much money and they don't have too many publishing houses, how are they going to let their voices be heard in the West? We talk about the democracy of ideas, but it might be, it's more like the capitalism of ideas in a certain That's, sense. Oh, Absolutely. Now, let me highlight actually something that's really wonderful that's been happening. A few years ago, a bunch of African biblical theologians got together and produced a one-volume commentary on the entire Bible called the Africa Bible Commentary. And this was produced in Africa by African theologians without any input from the West. And they put, gave their perspective on the entire Bible. And it involved 70 different scholars, and it is a brilliant work. And Zondervan, uh, which is one of our biggest Christian publishing houses in the West, saw it and said, that is amazing. And they said, can we publish that using our financial resources so that Westerners may be exposed to it? 
And the Africans said, sure. <laughs> so they gave the whole manuscript to Zondervan and they published it. And Zondervan now distributes this all over the world. I think this is such a wonderful partnership. Yeah. That, you know, it's the Africans without Western input who actually produced their own theology. But the Westerners said, okay, but we got the apparatus set up and the finances set up to be able to publish this all over the world. And they did. And then a bunch of South Asian theologians from Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh saw what the Africans did. And they had a moment of holy jealousy. This is their own words. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they said, wow, if the Africans did this, we should do this too. So they produced a South Asia Bible commentary, again, without any Western input. And Zondervan said, we love this. Can we likewise publish this and distribute it around the world? And they did. And there's a third one in the works about to come out, Latin America Bible Commentary. And then a fourth and a fifth one, the Middle Eastern Bible Commentary and the Slavic, which is an Eastern European Bible Commentary. So we're, we're seeing a lot of good stuff coming out. We, we need more of this, but it's starting. That's awesome. Let me, can I throw a... Uh devil's advocate argument at you here. Yes. Personally, I'm on the liberal end of American Christianity and and my own theology is gay affirming. And I have this worry specifically about African Pentecostalism, really African Protestantism about what it seems to me is quite a bit of homophobia in those churches. And what I mean by that, and I, you know, I'm not an expert, just this is from a handful of articles but I would, I don't think that anyone who's not gay affirming is homophobic. That's not what I mean. I mean, there's, it seems to me that there's more than simply a, well, Paul really believed this and I have to believe it kind of an approach to something that appears to me to be more pernicious and something more akin to like sexism getting, getting into interpretation. So let's say you have a American Christian who's worried about some of these more conservative interpretations <laughs> I mean, I don't know exactly how, where to go with this. I, you, you get what I'm saying that there could be that, like, are we regressing on some of these issues that morally might feel very important to us? Or what, what do we do in a situation like that where there is legitimate disagreement about moral issues? Sure. I think that's a very important question. And, you know, I think that with ideas that are, in different stages of development, that we need to let them be in a certain sense. Okay, I, this is a very nerdy example, but I love Star Trek. And one of the things in Star Trek is the prime directive. Now, anyone who's watched Star Trek knows this, that wherever the Starship Enterprise goes, and they land on a new planet, and their prime directive is that they don't impose on the new planet their technology or their ideas or their, you know, where they are in their stage of development, because that would disrupt the natural progress or flow of the history of that civilization. And so this is an interesting thing about tolerance. Is tolerance letting people be, or is tolerance putting on them our ideas of how we think they should be. Yeah, interesting. Right? And so I sort of feel like if we're truly tolerant, we have to let them just be and develop naturally as they are, instead of forcing them to get to a point where we think they ought to be. Because that, in a way, is colonialism of ideas. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you wanted the African church to become gay-affirming, 
and you thought, what's the best way to accomplish that? A bunch of American and British theologians <laughs> insisting, or would you want a movement from within those communities themselves? Obviously you would prefer the latter. It would be more, it would be more sustaining and it would probably have much better, greater reach. So, for example, this is kind of the theory behind the Socratic method of teaching. I used to be in a program where we taught Socratically, and the way that works is instead of telling them what the right answer is, you ask them questions and let them come up with their own conclusions. And it is seen that if they come up with their own conclusions, they own it a lot more than just being told what to believe. And so I, I think that we need to. Let Asian, African, and Latin American theologians decide for themselves. And sometimes progress or change requires patience. Yeah. And a giving up of control. I mean, if I'm honest, even just not that I am hold the levers of a world theological movement or anything like that, but there's a part of me inside that goes, Ugh, what if they, what if they are thinking really poorly? Like, what if they suck at it? It's weird, man. It's weird to be so used to my own group being in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think letting go of the controls is hard. It is much easier to to riches than from riches to rags. And I think this is why there's, as the Western world is starting to see a lot of the majority world actually um, grow in power and influence and money, um, there's fear. I think fear controls a lot of what people do these days. You see this in American politics and you see this all over the world, but and fear rears its ugly head and causes people to say and do really mean and ugly things. But God calls us to not fear. And as Christians, we need to be different from the world. We need to have humility and we need to not fear. I think the secular world operates out of fear and using power to dominate others. And I think we as Christians need to be different and we need to be humble. We need to be open. We need to be listening. And here's the other thing. We also need to acknowledge that the majority world has different lenses that they look through in terms of worldview. And we think about modernism versus postmodernism, but a, a lot of the majority world actually operates off of pre-modernism. And you might think, well, that sounds really primitive. That sounds are they like cavemen or something like, no, that's not what I'm getting at. But we need to acknowledge that the Western world is operating off of a lens of enlightenment and post enlightenment thinking. And honestly, enlightenment is not the, this is not the only way to view the world. The enlightenment puts all the emphasis on the brain, on the mind, on logic and rational thinking. But as Christians, don't we think that there's more to the world than just rationality? Of course we do. Otherwise, why would we ever believe in Christianity? You look at the people in the Bible, they would be rightly classified as pre-moderns. They believed right. in the supernatural, right? And so a lot of the majority world Christians really believe in the supernatural. And this brings us back to the Pentecostalism thing. And so if you believe in the supernatural, it means the mind is not the final arbiter of all things. Rationality and logic is not the end-all and be-all. Scientific proof and explanations cannot explain everything. And pre-moderns will look at the Bible differently than moderns or postmoderns will. And I think we have to listen to different kinds of worldviews today. 
Well, that is a perfect bridge into uh, the second half of this interview because your essay in Still Evangelical, one of the reasons that I loved it is you basically had two emphases in that article, which is sort of listening to Christianity from the rest of the world, but then also this distinction between these two theological terms, which we'll define, orthodoxy and orthopraxis. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're going to get into that connection of, are we living out of fear? Are we just, are we actually acting out Christ's love? Are we letting the love of God and our love of neighbor take its proper place over checking propositional theological boxes? So, Ellen, because I conducted this interview, I got to say whatever I wanted to Alan. I got to follow up, you know, whatever I thought. So I'm not going to run this segment. You are because you listened back to that and you have stuff you want to talk about. So you're in charge. What's item number one on the agenda? Well, I want to say I was listening to this with, as usual, a few glasses of wine (laughs) as I was baking. I'm going through a baking phase. Okay. So it was a little bit scattered for me, but... uh, I wrote, I wrote down, my first note, Dan, was that you were really vulnerable this episode. I, w- I guess there I were, was. I think, I think two times where you kind of, I don't know, you were just being very contrite. You admitted to being like convicted at one point. Uh-huh. I just yeah. love it. I love it. Well, you know, I'm a good liberal. When I'm talking to a person of color, I, you know, I get all, yeah. all my guilt stuff yeah. starts flaring up. So I think it's a natural response for a liberal white person. In the presence of people yeah, of color. Yeah, no, I think it's even especially, it translates over radio as especially well. Especially a person of color who knows way more than I do about something. Because then if you don't, you can't you're just going to get your ass yeah. kicked. Right. You feel awful later. So what do I talk? Call him Dr. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Dr. Yeah or Alan. Alan. Either way. I'm more comfortable with Alan. Yeah, let's is call that, him Alan. It, He's a really nice guy. Racist? He's our age. So oh, we, yeah, oh we I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought he was old. Prestigious. He's like our age. Okay. He's in his 30s. When you guys were talking about how American Christians seem to think that all other faiths, all over other religions are just cultural, hmm, it yeah. was so loud to me when you guys said that because- Loud meaning it- like, It resonated. Resonated, yeah. Because I feel that way. And I think you had said something about, you were a little bit convicted about how you just assume that we are the most developed as far as intellect goes and- faith, theology, whatever. So our, you and I both, I think our first reaction is to think, you know, someone from another country, especially a, like a poorer country, there's no way that their faith, their religion, their theology yeah. can be as developed as ours. Yeah. And I when, when I say that out loud, I don't, I know that that's of not course, right. No, of course we don't actually think but that, but we find ourselves assuming it. it's that we just it. assume that. Yeah, right. It's, it's very gross and embarrassing. I mean, it, it's... It, but it's also, yeah. Dan, it's also very exciting to me because when he was talking hmm. about how Zondervan is now publishing all of these incredible faith statements, basically, from these different parts of the world that are equally as valuable as anything in the Western world, that's very exciting. No, that's true. And this is something that's actually going to come up a few times this season. It's coming up with the African-American church in uh, upcoming episodes. And it's really something that like, I just totally never even thought about. I never thought to question it. I didn't think it was a problem. It was just like, oh yeah, the Korean church, like they're not, that's not normative. 
Like, right. The Presbyterian church is normative. The Korean church is like, well, they could be in Korea, but they're here. So it's, they're like a tier down. They have down. to have their, you know, like they had to make it com- cozy for themselves. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, they have church. to, exactly. They have to, um, oh, that's a cultural church. They're, they're yeah. making it good for that culture. As if we as don't if have a cultural church. As if the mega church in Albuquerque with the stars and bars when I went on 4th of July wasn't making it comfortable for a particular culture. Right. I mean, yeah. well, I think as white people, we don't see ourselves in culture. Right. And that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the things that we're ending up focusing on this season. And it's something that Jamar Tisby talks about a lot from Pass the Mic podcast. And I was listening recently to their response to that statement on social justice. Did you see that statement? Mm-mm. It's like John MacArthur is this kind of fundamentalist reform guy. And basically Jamar's, one of his criticisms of it was that like, it was basically a statement saying anti-social justice. It's like all that matters is the gospel and individuals. And we, we deny that like societal means of determining social justice have any place in the Christian life. Basically it's like a, whoa. Yeah. It was not good. And, but he said, look, it, it commits this sin of assuming that they are coming from an uncultured place. And then people who care about social justice are coming from a, additionally cultured place. Yeah. But that's of course not true. It's like another thing I've heard is everyone likes to think that their group is not a product of history, that every other group has some history that makes them that way. Oh, well, Jews are funny because they've suffered, but like white <laughs> Christians, for instance, whatever the thing might be, whatever your explanation might be, right? Everyone I need else one has of those buttons that goes, wah! <laughs> Any one of these claims, like everyone has a history. I'm not saying that that's the reason that Jews are funny. I I think that a lot of Jews are very funny. I don't know why. But the point being, it's not true. (laughs) Should I keep digging? It's not true that like white waspy, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants don't have a history. We have a history. We came over from England with all the money. Pretty rough history. With all the money and pestilence and the guns. That's that's our history, right? And the guns. You said that with your hands like an old Jewish guy. (laughs) I think you really need to drop it. Now who's getting racial? (laughs) Anyway, what's the next point? Let's see. You had said at some point that, and I don't know if this is worth really even talking about, but it stood out to me that American Christians go out on mission trips to preach the gospel around the world, but here in our country, we vote to keep those same people out. Yeah. And that was, I thought, was profound, Dan. I mean, it is. Well, thank you. It is kind of, it's interesting to think of like how much money evangelical churches spend on supporting missionaries. And going out. Even yeah. flying their own congregants to those countries to help out those missionaries to spread the gospel. Yeah. And then we have like people from Syria who want to move here, literally down the street from your church. And then Christian groups will spend money to elect candidates who will block them from doing that. Same. It's just, I mean, look, I have a lot of patience for the white evangelical community. I was raised in it. I'm still white and I'm still a Christian, even though I'm not an evangelical anymore. This is the issue that I am most disgusted and embarrassed by is the refugee question, because there's no factual basis. Refugees are not dangerous. They are the safest immigrants we have. They have the most difficult vetting process of any group of immigration. Mm-hmm. And they are the most in need. And they are literally in the Bible. The foreigner, the stranger in your midst, the traveler in your midst. It's just like, it's the most glaring example of politics and 
sort of socio-cultural group defining yeah. this view and not and faith. It's almost not worth arguing about because no, it's just we don't have abs- to. It's absurd. You know, look, if you're listening to this and you're you're surprised by my tone here, I would just say, just consider the fact that we are letting in the fewest refugees in this year and next year that the United States has ever let in since we started letting in refugees. Yeah. And if they were coming from, you know, London, I don't think anybody would have a problem. Yeah. There is white. a racial element, but also just like, is there, is, is really that, something. Like, London is full of white people and it's not, but you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like English people. Uh, you mean um, ethnically British people, right? Is Do the we situation... sound like idiots sometimes? <laughs> Surely sometimes. And if you, then if you then get or someone you know think that we sound like idiots, please email Dan. Uh, email me at Dan responds to emails at gmail.com. That's really good. So what I was saying is like, if we go down from 90,000 refugees to 33,000 refugees, do you, oh, evangelical, in most cases, Republican, do you think that the situation on the ground is such that those 60,000 people really need to be kept out, that things have changed in the last 75 years, 200 years, such that we need to take the fewest we've ever taken no way are are people being bombed left and right i mean what is what possible justification is there and if you're a christian the bible is unambiguous on this one so uh, this is like the most soapboxy i will ever get is on the issue uh, of refugees okay i think it's my number it's one close, soapbox there's two and you know silver and bronze are are not too far behind but this is my most soapboxy all right what's next ellen uh no that's it i want to get into part 2 Okay, so we'll be back after the second half of this interview for more (laughs) delights from Ellen. And hopefully no racial comments. Or at a minimum, at, at least, at a minimum. So if you guys have been paying attention, you have noticed that there are these new episodes twice a month for patrons of the show only. These are people who support the show at $3 a month or more at patreon.com slash depolarize. And this week, there's a special one going up because I had my friend Ben Bishop respond to this interview with Alan specifically. So this week's or this bi-monthly episode is Ben and I responding to the interview with Alan. And the reason I did that is because if you recall, if you've been a patron, Ben and I had a discussion a couple months ago where we talked about this thing that we always talk about, which is what is Christian orthodoxy? What counts as real Christianity? What is there that if you take it away, you're no longer talking about Christianity? And we talked about whether or not that really matters. But then I thought when I was listening back to the interview with Alan, well, this is an interesting angle because we've got this whole majority world, Western world thing to talk about. And then we've also got the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy which we're going to get into much more in the second half here. And I thought it'd be great to chat about that with Ben. It was a great conversation, really interesting. So if you are not a patron and you would like to support this show and the other podcasting work that I do, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize or click become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. And ready for you already up there, uploaded, is the conversation with Ben and I about this interview. Ellen, do you have anything to add? The whole time you were talking, I was thinking about 
this is related on the new chef's life. <laughs> I watch a lot of TV. Yeah. So there was a whole episode on pizza. What makes a pizza? What can you give or take from a pizza? And Without how which it's not pizza. Be, right. right. And there's this huge debate about it. And in a way, pizza and Christianity, yeah. not that unsimilar. No. Also Rome, big center for pizza and like Christianity. The Neapolitan pizza is supposed right. to be like it. It's but true. then some can I put barbecue chicken on a pizza? Some people would say, would say that does it's not a pizza. Well, I think uh, American evangelicals would have to say yeah. it is a pizza. Cheese by... is cheese the resurrection. <laughs> well, you guys, you, I think we got the message across. Uh, back to my interview with Alan, after which Ellen and I will debrief the second half of that interview. So can you just define orthodoxy and orthopraxis real quick? Yes. Ortho just means correct or right. So orthodoxy means right thinking. Orthopraxis means right action or right doing. Now, I think that unfortunately, the Protestant Reformation has done us a slight bit of disservice. Now, I do think there's many good things about the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. It was trying to fight against works righteousness, which is... I don't believe that works righteousness is biblical because Christianity is distinguished from all other religions in the world because it is not by works, but it is by faith that we are saved. We trust in the Lord Jesus and he's the one who saves us. You know, we don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So Martin Luther, I think rightfully, the father of the Protestant Reformation, rightfully pushed back against works righteousness. However, I do think he perhaps swung the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. Came up with these terms, sola fide and sola gratia, which mean by faith alone and by grace alone. Now, let me just say, I don't, it's not that I disagree with these things, because I do think, you know, you, th you, you read verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is not by works but that we are saved, but it is by faith and grace so that no one may boast, right? Absolutely, I believe that. However, I think that some people hear sola fide and sola gratia and they think, all right, well, then all I need to do is give lip service to Jesus and that's it. And then they don't actually live out their lives as Christians. Well, we forget about other verses like in Matthew chapter seven on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to do the will of God. You have to bear good fruit. And Jesus withered the fig tree that did not bear fruit. So I think it's not so much grace and faith alone, but I would reframe it as it's grace and faith with works, except the works have to come after the grace and faith. Mm. If, it, if the works come before the grace and faith, that's works righteousness. If grace and faith is absent of works, that's called cheap grace. But if it's followed by good works and fruit, that is proper Christianity. So I think that's what we need to reframe our minds as. So because the orthopraxy or, or orthopraxis, the good works is evident of your faith. If you say, and I'm quoting the epistle of James here, if you say, hey, you know, I have faith, but you don't have works, then James says, well, what good is your faith if you don't have works? I mean, you see you believe in God? Good. Even demons believe in God. 
But just saying those words does not make it mean that you follow Jesus. We need to follow Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian. How did we get to the point where the definition of a Christian is someone who checks the right list of propositional statements about God or the Bible? Great question. I think it is, as I referred to earlier, a product of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was something that spread across Europe and into Western culture, and it made the mind the arbiter of all things. Logic became the supreme ruling thing. And so what ended up happening is that we infuse that into our Christianity. And so when Western Christianity says, well, we have no cultural influences, we're just neutral, I would say you absolutely have cultural and historical influences. And one of them is the Enlightenment. That's a huge one. And that we've turned rationality as the supreme thing in our Christianity. And so that's why checking off propositional truths and boxes became the determiner of how someone is a Christian. So we have things like the Westminster Catechism or the Nicene Creed. Again, don't get me wrong. I don't have any problems with those things. But all I'm saying is those things are not sufficient to determine if someone is a Christian. Someone can say all the right things. And you know what? Even believe all the right things. It does not mean that they are Christians. I mean, I'm going to use an extreme example here, but Judas. (laughs) Judas certainly believed in Jesus, Hmm. but he did the absolute wrong thing. So you have this simple, great argument in your essay where you basically say, look, if we would consider Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox all to be Christians, then it follows that right belief is not the sole determining factor in whether or not you are a Christian. I mean, it seems that seems kind of obvious, right? The other option, which a lot of people did teach me growing up and many of my friends grew up with is, well, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are not Christians. That's sort of the way out of that argument. But can you just talk a little bit about that really elegant and simple argument? Yes, I think we need to distinguish between two levels of beliefs, the essentials and the non-essentials. And there's actually a sort of a famous phrase attributed to St. Augustine, although apocryphally, which is, in things essential, unity, in things non-essential, diversity, and in all things, charity, or love, or grace, however you want to say it. And so I think that we need to say, okay, what are the things that all Christians really ought to agree on? Well, I would say, and this is my own list, I, I, I mean, I... I think that maybe some Christians might disagree with me on this list, but I would say that all Christians must believe in the Trinity. All right. I think if you don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're not really a Christian. Yeah. I think that all Christians must believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty central to our faith. Yeah. You know, I I think that all Christians must believe in the authority of the Bible. So now I know know people interpret the Bible differently, but you got to say that the Bible is our authority, right? Yeah, there's no um, better least, source of authority than yes, that, or or yes. at least written. Yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. And so those are some things that I feel like are non-negotiables. Like, those are essentials of the faith. Now, what are some non-essentials of the faith? Well, like Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? Like, is, is it uh, divine sovereignty or human responsibility that dictates how we're saved? I mean, you know, 
good theologians debate on this or egalitarianism versus complementarianism, you know, can women preach or hold church office, things like this. And I mean, I, I believe they can, but you know, some Christians believe they can't, but I don't think this is a salvation issue or a dictator of uh, whether one is a Christian. And, you know, I think of how one does baptism. Uh, I would have to say, okay, well, I think that anybody who agrees on the essentials is a Christian. And people who differ on the non-essentials, well, that's okay. I think we need to not call someone who differs from yourself on the non-essentials a heretic or a sinner or a non-Christian, right? But but people tend to do this, right? They tend a lot of people tend to take the non-essentials of what they believe and elevate them all into the essentials category. Here, here's the thing. Here's here's my call for why it's so essential to be exposed to majority world Christians. When you are exposed to majority world Christians, you realize that. In the areas where you agree, that's what Christianity is. And in the areas where you disagree, that's probably where culture is. That's great. So, so being aware of what's going on elsewhere in the world is a, is a simple heuristic tool for figuring out what the essentials really are. Yes, absolutely. And so this is the problem with missionaries of old. They were mainly whites, and they would go to the majority world or Back then, it wasn't majority because, um, or at least not in terms of Christianity, most Christians were in the West. But the Western missionaries would, they don't, they did not know or could not see the difference between their culture and their faith. So they would go overseas and spread both. But now that Christians are largely in the majority world, that they are able to theologize for themselves, then I think now we can compare notes. And we can say, okay, where do we all agree? These are the essentials of the faith. Where do we disagree? These are the non-essentials of the faith. And these are areas where we have to say, hey, you know, let's just agree to disagree on this. And it really brings to light what exactly is a Christian then. I love that. And I, and I think we finally have connected for the listeners, I hope, those, these two ideas of majority world Christianity and orthodoxy versus orthopraxis. But to focus a bit more on that second bit, you have a great thought experiment in your essay about a fictional man from India named Papaya. And uh, I'd like you to just kind of walk us through that thought experiment and what it's supposed to show us. Paul Hebert writes about this in his book, Anthropological Reflections on Missiological Issues. That sounds like a real page turner. (laughs) It is a mouthful. (laughs) But actually, it's a very, very insightful book. And I feel like Paul Heber, he's the one who came up with this thought experiment. He says, okay, so there's this young Indian Christian, Papaya, and he, you meet him, you tell him that Jesus is Lord, and he believes, and he accepts that. Now, how much does Papaya know about Christianity? Very little. Right. Would you say he's a Christian? Yes. I think most people would say yes. Yeah. Okay. But how can he be a Christian? If he knows so little, I think because he knows the essentials, that Mm -hmm. Jesus loves him, died for him, and rose again from the dead and forgave his sins, right? But does he need to know all this other theology to become a Christian? No. Okay, so then that shows that to be a Christian, it does not mean it's all dependent on knowing all the right theology. It isn't. I think the important thing to determine if Papaya is a Christian is the direction that he's pointed. Mm. Is he following Jesus? And uh, one of the things that Paul Hebert talks about in a different chapter in that book 
is the difference between a bounded set and a centered set. Now, imagine a graph where you have a circle around the cross. And the bounded set is, says that everything inside that circle is a Christian and everyone outside of the circle is not. Hmm. Right? This is traditionally how we've understood Christianity. But the centered set doesn't have a circle around the cross. It has a bunch of people around the cross, but it has arrows pointed inward or outward. Right. And anyone pointed inward, even if they're far away, would be considered a Christian. Anyone who is pointed outward, even though they are close, is considered not a Christian. I think that's actually what the Bible teaches, not a centered set. Sorry, not a bounded set, but a centered set. An example of someone who is far away but pointed towards the cross, the thief on the cross. Right. Right. He was a criminal, but he confessed belief in Jesus. And Jesus said, this is like Papaya, right? He knows very little, but Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And someone who's far, who's close to Jesus, but turned the wrong direction is Judas. Right. Right. And so it's not how close or far from Jesus you are. It's what direction you're pointed. And so I think the bounded set is incorrect because this just shows how much you know, or, you know, how long you've been a Christian or something like that. Also, if you go with the bounded set, if you want to draw the circle and say, these are the people who are in, this is what you have to believe to be in, then you're going to have to deal with all kinds of epistemological problems about how we know what we know. And you're going to have to answer really tough questions. Like, how do I know that I can trust this translation of the Bible? How do I know that in the English language over the last 50 years, we haven't gone astray on certain things that are affecting even just my translation of my Bible? How do I know I can trust my pastor? How do I, how do I know that the black preacher down the street doesn't get it better? What if I was born into a black family, into a different neighborhood of my city? You, if you, if you want to draw the circle, you have all these questions about, I mean, you really, you really have to answer a lot of questions that you might not think at first that you have to answer. But if you want to say, is this moving towards or away from Christ? It seems a lot simpler to answer that. And there, there's not no questions to answer. Some things might appear to be loving that are not loving, but that is a much simpler program, it seems to me. Absolutely. I have one last question for you about orthodoxy and orthopraxis. You talk about how the relationship between right thinking and right action is not a two-way street. A person who has right action must have at least some right thinking, but someone who has right thinking might not have right action at all. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. So I really find it hard to imagine someone who has all the wrong thinking but actually acts correctly. I mean, I, I, I really struggle to come up with any scenario where, where that might yeah. be true. But I can totally think of people who say all the right things, but just do the wrong things. Oh, yeah. And so I just think talk is cheap in that sense. I mean, I, l- let, me, let me rephrase that. I do believe there's power in words. And we believe that Jesus is the word. And we believe in the word of God. But that word of God needs to express itself in right action. And there is no guarantee that someone who says the right things will actually do the right things. But I would say most of the time, if someone is doing all the right things, 
they're probably believing the right things. But I also want to bring up a parable in Matthew, which is the parable of the two sons. Yeah. Um, and Jesus actually says, okay, so imagine there's a father and he asks his two sons to go work in the field. And one of them says, no, I won't do it. And he actually goes and does it. And the other one says, yeah, I'll do it. And he doesn't actually go do it. Which one is justified? Hmm. And Jesus says, well, it's the one who said, I won't do it, but then went and did it. In other words, it's the person who actually did the right action that's right. justified. And I suppose in that situation, there's an example of someone who said the wrong thing, but actually did the right thing. But I just think, yeah, you know, imagine if Christians went around the world and just did the right thing all the time, just followed Jesus and did all the appropriate things. And let's say they said some things that weren't right or good, or I don't know, you know, I'm trying to imagine, <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's even possible, but let's say Christians behaved in all the right ways, but said some off things and then flip it. Imagine a lot of Christians say the right things, but just do awful things around the world, which actually is more of the situation, which is reality today. Which one do you think has a more profound effect on non-Christians, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think people, if we all did the right things, I think that would be powerful. That that would really, if you go with the old adage, you know, actions speak louder than words. So, yeah. You know, I actually, I've got one more thing to to chat with you about that this reminds me of. And, and now we're getting kind of to the bleeding edge of some modern epistemology of theory of how we know things. But a friend of mine, Matt Benton, who is a philosopher at Seattle Pacific University, is, is actually working on this right now. And it strikes me that it's quite relevant to what we've been talking about. Give me a second to set it up here. So he's talking about the difference between knowledge of propositions and knowledge of persons. And the interesting thing that relates to the global Christianity thing is he says, you know, in French or Spanish, there are different words for knowledge of a thing or an idea and knowledge of a person. But in English, we just use the word no. I know that truth or I know that person. But we could distinguish just as those other languages do between those different kinds of knowing. And so for someone to know God is actually a different kind of a knowing than to know things about God. Just like I would say, if I, I could tell you, Alan, everything you need to know about my wife, but you still don't know her, I know her, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is related to all of this in a way that it might be another way of thinking about this, that simply to say all the right things about Dwayne the Rock Johnson does not mean that I know Dwayne the Rock Johnson. In order for <laughs> in order for me to know the rock, the rock has to know me as well. There is a symbiosis to that kind of a knowledge relationship of persons. I don't know President Obama, ex-President Obama, because Obama doesn't know me. I just know about him. I mean, I'm putting you on the spot here because this was not in your essay, but how would you react to that distinction? And what do you, what do you think about that? I love that distinction. And I do think it is a thing to do with language, but it also is a thing to do with culture. I think it is instructive to turn to the Bible and actually to the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew word 
Yada, Y-A-D-A, is the word to know. And you actually hear this in sort of modern Hebrew or even Yiddish. You know, you watch like Seinfeld and there's, they say yada, 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 which means I know, I know, I know, right? right? So, but the word yada means I know not only in a head knowledge way, but uh, more in the intimate personal way. So interestingly, the word yada not only means to know someone in a personal way, but it also means the word for sex. So for example, Adam and Eve knew God, but they also knew each other. Adam knew Eve, right? It means they had sexual intercourse. Right. And so there is this sense of knowing is so deep. It is a personal thing, as you said. And there's a correlation, absolutely, between this is why God uses marriage as an analogy for him and the church, Mm. because it is a loving, knowing, intimate, monogamous, like loyalty thing that happens. And so adultery is really synonymous with idolatry. Because if you cheat on your spouse, that's like, you know, worshiping another God and vice versa. Um, God says, I'm a jealous God. And I'll have no one for me, but you and you have no one for me uh, for yourself, but me, you know, I am yours and you're mine. And that's the kind of knowledge that is evident there. And so I do think that, yes, absolutely, experientially, we need to know God. And, and here's the thing where it comes down to majority world Christianity. Everybody around the world knows God differently, depending on your culture and your history and your circumstances. For example, I used to be a missionary in Mexico. And let me tell you that if you go and preach about the fatherhood of God in Mexico, it does not land the same way that it does in the United States. Right. Why is that? Well, it's because a lot of Mexican families have absentee fathers for good or bad reasons. Bad reasons might be they've cheated on the wife or have run off with another woman or abandoned the family. Good reason might be, hey, they're trying to make enough money to support their family. So they they go to the United States and they work and they never see their family but that, this way, at least they can send home a paycheck and right. support the family. Okay. But regardless, fathers are largely absentee in Mexico, whereas mothers are like the bulwark, the center of the family. This is why there's a, all this um, theology of the Virgin of Guadalupe, right? She's the ultimate mother. People love mother. In, in Mexico, if you forget Father's Day, it's not a big deal. But if you forget Mother's Day, you are dead. <laughs> it's like it's so important to the culture. So here's the problem. If you go to Mexico and you preach about the fatherhood of God, People in Mexico don't hear the word loyalty or fidelity or or loving kindness. Right. Or they hear the word father. They hear something else. Mm. Right? They hear absentee. They hear distance. They might hear provider, things like this, right? But a lot of times people in the majority world will, will see God or Jesus in different ways that we don't see them. For example, all the agricultural metaphors that Jesus uses— I think for a lot of Western city dwellers, we don't get those things, but a lot of people in the majority world will get those and it's, it's very real to them or in terms of fathers and children, in terms of the patriarchal lineage and in terms of extending the family and everything that in more communal cultures, they get that much more than we in the West who are individualistic cultures don't get that. And so I think it's very important for us to 
as different people around the world know God in different ways, that we share those ways that we know God with each other so that individualists will understand how communalists get God, right? And absentee father families will get how non-absentee father families get God. And we have a wealth of riches of theological insights to share with each other of how we know God. And maybe if we put them all together, we'll get a fuller picture of who God is. Man, I'm just kind of sitting here, honestly, repenting, I think is the right word, as as uh, awkward as it is to say that on a podcast, of like how much I have judged like, you know, Mexican Catholics and their what seems to me to be kind of superstitious overveneration of Mary, but I had never thought of the gendered aspect of God in through that cultural lens before. And it makes a lot more sense to me. Even just that single piece of single piece of information that you gave me makes so makes so much more sense of this phenomenon that I have pretty much written off my entire life. Yeah, and actually, there's so much more to the Virgin of Guadalupe. I actually wrote an article about it in the uh, International Journal of Frontier Missiology about the Virgin of Guadalupe. But she also represents indigenous because she's not only female but she's brown. She's huh. she's Indian. So yeah, there, there's a lot in there that causes Mexicans to identify with her, but which, you know, we in the West don't see. Yeah. And we're just over here being assholes basically up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am anyway, we will put a link to that article in the show notes. If people want to read that, Dr. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Wow. So pretty emotional interview there. Ellen, you you seem to have loved it. I did love it. I think it's because I just like this guy. Alan's great. And almost everything he says, I'd say probably everything he says that I know about resonates with me. Mm-hmm. I feel validated. This is just a like a rejoicing episode for me. Yeah. One of the things you you mentioned before we started taping is validation at him saying, you know, Theology is not sort of a prerequisite for anybody to be a Christian. Yeah. He talks about the the guy in uh, India or whatever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I made a great <laughs> somewhere First, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Somewhere in Southern Some Asia. Some ignorant white comment from Dan. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. I made it 30 seconds. What he was talking about how if someone be- hears about Jesus for the first time, believes, obviously in that he's saying in like his heart changes. Right. Is he a Christian? We would say yes. He has no theology. So you don't really have to have much past believing that Jesus is God. Yeah. Which is, a, it is a theological claim, but his point is yeah. that not, he doesn't have to be he like, he doesn't subscribe to anything. all this stuff yes. and have it all filled out. Which right, is right. always how I felt. I felt that Jesus didn't even really have a theology. He certainly didn't teach a bunch of theology. And I, you know, I came from Mars Hill, which was, well, in, in my adult life, and it was very Calvinist. And I, you know, great, Calvinism makes a lot of sense to me, but then. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's like... It's not determinative of how God sees you, Right, you might say. And just so people, in case people don't know, Mars Hill was the big church blow up with Mark Driscoll in Seattle a couple of years ago. Not everybody knows what that is. Oh, Google it. You you don't need much more than (laughs) Google. Google and a bag of popcorn. Yeah. But it, it was validating to me because I feel 
like with people like you who are very, I don't want to say intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 wait. Because you are intelligent, but that just sounds like I'm not. I am intelligent. You're intelligent. In my own way. But you're academic. You're super into theology. I'm a nerd. Nerd is the word you're looking for. People like me who are nerdy. Yeah. You get yes. you get into the dark place about it. Yeah. It's deep. Whereas I have just as equal and as valid of a relationship with Christ as you do. Agreed. But I don't know all the stuff. Right. So it was really validating for me to have this professor, someone who knows a lot about theology, say, you don't need theology. Yeah. And it just, for whatever it's worth, it was a really freeing moment in that interview for me. That's great. I'm sure that I have probably made hundreds of people feel at some point in my life like they were lesser Christians because they couldn't or didn't want to keep up with whatever I was thinking and talking about and, you know. But you have gotten a lot better at being like, no, you don't have to, it's fine. We can talk about something else. Well, I appreciate that. Actually, this exact same point is going to come up in another episode this season with Dale Martin, the former Yale professor. And he, you know, he his whole life has been doing, you know, intense biblical studies and theology writing. But one of the things he says is like, but I, if I meet a lot of people, I say, none of my work is for you. Like, it might not be for you, and that's fine. Now, there are some of us, Dale, myself, John Raines, my Reconstruct co-host, like, there are friends of ours, and there are people who do need to go there, that we, we need yeah. to go there. Because if we don't go there, and we don't know what it is we're saying in church, yeah. we don't know what we're claiming, we feel uncomfortable with you that. You guys have a problem. We ha- I mean, <laughs> it, it is more of an affliction than a gift, I think, most days. I No, I would agree, because I, I don't know any one theology extremely well. I mean, I guess everybody could say that they know their own, but I feel like I'm almost in a safe zone because I I don't want to subscribe to anything wholeheartedly because that means that I am not seeing theology the way that I think Christ wants me to see it, which is more simplistic than that and not subscribing to one theology. Yeah. Cause I don't want to say like, I am a Calvinist. I don't yeah, want it to be I my I am a liberation theologian yeah. or something. I mean, yeah. I think I probably am a Calvinist maybe, okay. but I just like when we found out I was an evangelical. We found out on live yeah. on air. I don't care. That means nothing to yeah, me. Yeah, it was interesting. But that's just yeah. those, I answered those questions and it meant something to someone else. It meant something mm-hmm. to the person asking those questions. But I could give a shit if I was an evangelical or yeah. not, because I don't know what that means. It doesn't mean anything to me. So what's interesting about this context, so I, I want to ask you this, is that it isn't just a question of, can you be a Dan or can you be an Ellen? Like, can you be a nerd about this? Or can you not be a nerd about this? But the, the context is also we're probably putting too much emphasis on what we think and our knowledge. And Alan is encouraging us to think more about our orthopraxy, what we do. What we're doing, our behavior and our actions. It might yeah. be that a Christian way of being is more what a Christian is than a Christian way of thinking. So I know that you feel, I mean, I'm grateful and glad that you feel some comfort in being, oh, I don't have to be like that. Good. But then how do you think of it in the context of, yeah, maybe it's what I do that makes me a Christian. Yeah, well, I kind of come from the feeling where we need to just love people well. Yeah. And Christ works through us and yeah. Christ loves people through us. He doesn't need us. Right. But people are loved and benefited when we participated. 
Yeah, I mean, the audio adrenaline song is, I want to be your hands. I want to be your feet. It's not, you need me to be your hands. You need me to be your feet. (laughs) That would be a good song. That would be theologically false. Yeah, and and when you guys were talking about, you can think and believe all the right things and without being like Christ and doing like Christ, what what does that mean? It's really The demons believed and knew all the right things. Judas knew and believed all the right things. And the whole concept of, you can believe all the right things and think all the right things and even say all the right things, but what direction are you pointing in? That's nuts. Yes, I love that. Are you going towards the circle or are you going away from yeah. the circle or the middle of the circle or whatever? That was a cool image that he had. And lastly, the concept that every person around the globe knows our God hmm. in a different way. It's sort of like, okay, when you go to a funeral and... Different people from different walks of life from that person's life get up and speak about their stories or their mm. experience. And yeah. you never heard that story before. Right. I've been in that situation a couple of times where we get to know this person that we love sometimes even better through other people's experiences and other people's stories about them. And I love the idea of if we could all get together and somehow – relate or experience each other's knowledge of Christ, whoa, that would be so crazy. And it strikes me that there's actually two ways to think about that. There's an individual level where I, as an individual, want to say, I would prefer to know everything about God. Like, I would prefer that my thinking about God is sufficient and encapsulates God. And there are other individuals out there who are going to be able to tell me things because they're going to experience God differently. There's also like a group level as a white man. Like, I think there's a lot of fear that if we really listen to the Latin American church, if we really give Mexican women who celebrate the Virgin of Guadalupe, if we really give them the time of day, are they going to give us something trustworthy? Is that going to be worth our time? Right. Right? So there's an individual level and a group level, and there can be anxiety there both ways of like, but I oh. think that thinking really comes from that idea that you want to change, not you personally, but yeah. that that idea comes person from, in the thought experiment. You want to change God to be who you believe God to be, and who you want God to be, f- instead of changing yourself. To be like, yeah, to be like to what be God like wants. Like whatever God is, and yeah, we we will never wants, really yeah. know that. I mean, it's not like anybody really thinks they can change God, but. It's more like people are very easily convinced that they have understood God because that's, it gives That's what I mean. Yeah, it gives yeah. tremendous psychological and group cohesion benefits and all of that stuff and yeah. that's dangerous. Like my God does not care about this type of sin. My God doesn't care or about whatever my, Colin yeah. Kaepernick cares about. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Like that's an example of us kind of molding our view of God to be convenient for us. Yeah. But I love the idea that after the beginning of the church, everybody wrestled with their own theology and we kind of all got this like leftover stuff. I loved it when he said, if we let African bishops write like the new Nicene Creed or whatever, it would be like about ancestor worship. We'd be like, what the hell? Yeah. It wouldn't apply to us. Yeah. Because it's just, and this is something that we don't have time to talk about this a lot, but I have been thinking a ton about the variety of human experiences. And I think I'm afraid of that in some way. Like I always want like a totalizing 
universal explanation for human experience or religious experience, or I want to know the theory that encapsulates the spiritual dimension. I want to know what that is. I want to have it. Dan, here's why I worry about you. <laughs> Do you really believe that, let's say you live till you're 90. Of God co- bless whatever, you. Of course, whatever you're going to say, no, I don't believe it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I won't even ask. You, you're going to say- Do you really think that you're ever going to reach anything? Of course not. Of course I'm not going to figure then it out. Then why try? This is why I don't exercise. What's the point? <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is I don't actually think I should want those totalizing universal explanations. I'm saying that I notice myself wanting them. That is your- That's my default. Mm. And I have been reading a lot and thinking a lot about the variety of human experience and even the variety of people's religious experience. And I am just starting to see that as a plus and not a minus, that there's actually something bigger and more beautiful there and not just scary because I won't be able to pin down the nature of God and the nature of reality. That's one of the, I think the most exciting things about who God is, is that we'll never really... No, because we've got eternity to know. Right. It's very exciting to me. I'm trying to come to the point where that's exciting to me, yeah. but I'm definitely more of a control freak by nature. And I want to just, I, I want to have but it on But even if you brought up your wife, let's say that tomorrow you learned everything there was to know. There was no more new things. Yeah. She would never say a new word. There would never be a new emotion. You could never have a new conversation. That was it. You just got, you got <sighs> everything. Awful. That would be awful. Exactly. The reason you want to be married forever is because it's just like always going to be new. Well, I'm not Mormon, so I'm not going to be married forever, but you mean till we die. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. Nerd alert. Time to cut me off. That's enough nerdery for uh, one evening. Anything else to say about Alan? No, I just have, I hope you have him on again. What else could we talk to him about? Let's let's be texting about that because he's so great. I'd love to do that. Wait, before we go... Your eyes did light up when I said Virgin of Guadalupe. Do you have something oh, about that? I Well, I was bummed when you said the whole Mexican Catholic thing. And I get what you're saying because it is sort it does seem sort of like I did not like say a, it disparagingly. I was mi- Well, what you what you I was speaking in the character voice very, of someone who would be yeah, disparaging. Yes, but I wasn't actually it. being that way. Yeah. But what you were saying is you've kind of always thought it was sort of superstition. Yeah. yeah that's what I've always assumed. All right. Yes. For whatever reason, I love it. I love the whole thing. If people want to learn a bit more about this, what should they read or watch or something? Because I don't know anything about the whole version of Guadalupe stuff. What should I do? I'll be really honest. I'm not an expert either. I know you're not an expert, but <laughs> then why ask? Can you me think resources? of like, oh, there's this documentary, or like, oh, this per- this show did an episode on it. Do you have nothing? Have, Where did you learn? I have nothing. How did you find out about it? You just, grew up in Seattle. Yeah. I have her all over my house. Are you saying to me, hold on, are you saying that the aesthetics <laughs> of the version of That's Guadalupe I... logo is the thing that you love? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You don't know the backstory? Yes. I don't really care right now. You're just now. like, it's like the Nike swoosh. It's yeah. such a good It is visual. like a total, I have hopped on to the, to the Mexican Catholic thing. I love it. And what's cool is that up until this conversation with Alan, I just kind of, I was with you. I just kind of thought like, well, you know, it's a cultural thing. It's superstition, but damn, but that's some good now design. Now I'm thinking. Something more to it, maybe. Maybe I'm thinking this was all purposeful. She's all over my house for a reason. 
I love it. I also, though, have an old Mexican gang drug lord, like, framed above our couch. And I don't worry. Just because you have a, you know, picture of somebody in your house, it doesn't mean you worship (laughs) them, right? It's a cool picture. He's on a horse. It's like this old dusty photo. I'm looking at a photo, you know, a framed old poster from like a, it was like a French yeah, anti-Vietnam so, War yeah, thing. I don't worship that Vietnamese Virgin woman. Virgin de Guadalupe, I just, I freaking love her. I'm just saying this. I think we need another segment at the end of an episode, only for those who are interested, or maybe a patron-only episode. Where once I you, discover. Once you've looked into it, you oh, tell us. love that. Let's do a patron-only. We're going to do. I would okay, love that. Ellen is going to research the Virgin of Guadalupe. We will do, at some point in the next couple months, a patron-only episode, which is just Ellen teaching yep. me about and it and chatting about it. And next time you see a skinny white guy with a virgin of Guadalupe le- right. leg tattoo, you're going to have different feelings about it than we have right, right now. Because right now we don't know anything and about it. And just to be clear, describe that one because there's a lot of sort of It's very Mary. beautiful. It's yeah. sort of like this- it's got the uh, garland around it, yes. kind of an oval and she's garland. Look- and Jesus is at her feet. Yeah. And- I actually think that, you know, that cartoon Angry Birds? Yeah. For whatever reason, it looks like Angry Birds. To me. I don't, this I'm is not, very weird. Let's edit that out. That may connect. No, because it's, maybe some people every go, time I know I exactly see what you're talking about. Every time about. I see it, and yeah, you're right. Maybe we should leave this in just yeah. because if you have one of these in your home, look at that Jesus on the bottom there with the, the red, uh, he's wearing like a red s- cloak. something. Yes. And it looks like Mary is standing there looking down and this Angry Bird is at the bottom. And it looks like the garland is made of little green you pigs. Went, Dan, what is that thing called where no. there's the miracle where people find Mary in their toast and stuff? Yeah, visions. Or Maybe I'm the, having yeah. like an angry bird vision. I don't even know what that show, I've never seen it. Okay, well, that seems like a good place to end it, Ellen. That's not going to be on part of that. I think it's there. It's staying. Thank you for a fantastic episode. And we'll see you guys next week. And then I have a recipe for chicken papaya. (laughs) (laughs) How did it turn out? Great. Well, the context in this interview, right? Let me do that again because I burped. (laughs) John Mulaney does a bit about when you get older and you burp, you start just talking through it. Yeah, I love that bit. Yeah, just talking through the burp. It is sort of this ongoing battle between work-based theology and... You mean works based? Works, yeah. Not work based. What's the difference between work based and works like, based? No, no. Work based theology would be like daily meditations that like come to your work email, and then maybe you work uh, at a Christian a company, dick. and there's a little. You're a dick. You knew exactly. Instead what of I meant. nap pods, there's like Bible study pods. Anyway, the thought that somewhere deep in. I almost just said the jungle, like all of Africa is a jungle. Oh my gosh. Hey, there, we have a rainforest. At least, hey, you caught yourself. I will say though that it. I never sound like this outside of this podcast, but I'm being like forced to talk about this. Or show. you don't listen to yourself critically. Yeah, that's it, probably most of it.